Hallelujah. And what's that celebration? Well, um, we have an empty tomb. We don't have a box where our Savior is. We don't have a grave where he's buried. We have an empty tomb. He's not here. He is risen. He's alive. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you have accomplished in our lives. Well, this is Easter Sunday, so what can we preach about? We can only preach about the resurrection, right? So our, the title of our message this morning is, You've Got to Hear This. You've got to hear this. Easter Sunday morning, what a great day. It's on this day that we celebrate the most important day in the history of the world. It is a day worth celebrating. It is a day worth talking about. In college, I was introduced to one of my favorite Easter songs. It's uh, written by a female singer, uh, and the words to the song, uh, its title is, He Rolled Away the Stone. It goes like this, Sunday morning, 6 o'clock. Looks like, Jeruz- looks like the sun hadn't been up long. Jerusalem is in a state of shock. Somebody's saying that there's something wrong. But Mary says she's seen him and he's alive. Well, the priests say that's a lie. But he did say he would rise. Perhaps Mary's testimony here. He rolled away the stone. There's nobody left in that hole in the ground. He rolled away the stone. There's nothing there but an empty shroud. I can tell you that the Lord is up and gone because he rolled away the stone. He rolled away the stone. Thomas said, I can't believe that he's risen from the grave. Well, Mary said that in Galilee you can see him face to face. When he felt his hands and touched his side, well, it opened up his eyes. My Lord, my God, he cried. He rolled away the stone. There's nobody left in that hole in the ground. He rolled away the stone. There's nothing left but an empty shroud. I can tell you, we can tell each other, I can tell you that the Lord is up and gone because he rolled away the stone. The grave is empty. A couple of possible testimonies from Mary and Thomas there as they reflect on that resurrection morning. Um, if you understand the excitement that they must have had when they found out that Jesus was alive, the death was defeated, the grave was empty, and Jesus is risen. What glorious news that was. Those were important and they were good to tell Thomas and Mary had their stories to tell. But thinking about the title of our message this morning, it's not about what others have to say or what others might want you to hear, but what you've got to hear this morning comes from someone more important, so much more important than Mary or Thomas. 
This morning, we're going to hear from Jesus. We're going to hear the things that he had to say on that first Easter Sunday morning. At our pastor's fellowship, uh, Pastor Brian King, our Northeast Director Fellowship, he said, so what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, well, I haven't quite decided yet. Um, So as I prayed about it and thought about it, um, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to preach to us this morning the things that Jesus said at that first resurrection. What more important words could we have? None. There's nothing more important than what Jesus had to say on that Sunday morning. You know, as we think about the first Easter Sunday, the week that led up to the resurrection, it was not an easy week for the followers of Jesus. They had spent three years of their lives with Jesus, and they planned on spending the rest of their life following this same Jesus. He was their leader. He was going to help them do amazing things, things that nobody else could do. They planned on serving him. They planned on working with him. They planned on being led by him. And in the span of a week, that all came crashing down. Let me briefly recap for you, if you will, the Passion Week. And we're going to do it in pictures. Last week, we talked about Palm Sunday. And what is Palm Sunday all about? You see it up here on the screen. You see that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. That was Palm Sunday. It was a triumphant entry. It was all full of excitement and joy. And people were enthusiastic about Jesus and what he was going to do in and through them. And then they moved on into Monday. We call it Holy Monday. What happened on that Monday? Well, Jesus came across a bunch of people who were not living the way they ought to be living. They were making a mockery of the house of his father, and so he got upset, and he cleansed the temple. He turned over the tables. He threw out the money changers who were robbing the people, and he said, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Out with you all. And that righteous anger set the tone for what was about to unfold in the rest of the week. On Tuesday, we understand that Jesus had some great teachings. Uh, We call it the Olivet Discourse. He talked about the future and what that would look like and and what would happen for those who didn't believe Jesus is who he says he is, the the trauma, the, the dramatic things that would unfold in their lives right here on this earth. And it's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, despite what some might have you believe. Those things that he talked about have not yet taken place, but they're going to happen. And praise God when Jesus comes back to rule from his throne. On Wednesday, kind of a quiet day, but one significant thing took place on that Wednesday. Um, it, was, it was the thing of Mary washing Jesus' feet. She came in, and they were busy sitting down having a meal. Nobody else take, took the time to wash Jesus' feet, which was a tradition in those days. It was a custom in those days. Maybe even a little bit more than a tradition. It was expected. If you, the owner of the house, didn't wash the people's feet when they came into your house, you had a servant who would do that. But here Jesus, their master, their Lord, their teacher, came into the house. Nobody washed his feet. And in comes Mary with an alabaster box with costly perfume. And the the box probably cost as much as the perfume did. She busted that box. The perfume filled, the fragrance filled the room. Her tears and the perfume were put on Jesus's feet. She used her hair to wash his feet. And somebody objected. What are you doing, Mary? 
You could have sold that and it could have gone into the treasury and we could have used that to feed the poor or something else. Now, it's interesting that Judas was saying that because we all know that Judas wasn't concerned about the poor or feeding anybody. He was thinking that if they put that money in the treasury, he was the treasurer and he could do what he wanted with it. Okay? So it was really nothing. Judas didn't know what he was talking about except he wanted to take it for himself. But Mary, in complete humility, washes the feet of Jesus on that Wednesday. On Thursday, they meet in the upper room and Jesus institutes or he does the Last Supper, which is our pattern for communion that we celebrate now once a month, every month here at Calvary Baptist Church. But they were in the upper room, and then they moved to Gethsemane. What a night that was. Jesus prayed in the garden. Lord, Father, God, this is not something that I am looking forward to. I'd rather not do it. His heart was overcome with sorrow. But not my will. Yours be done. And then as he finished praying and he went back and he found his disciples fast asleep, even though he had begged them to watch and pray with him, let's go, guys, there's more to come. And then we have the arrest and the betrayal of Jesus, that kiss, Judas's kiss. What a, what a way to betray somebody. Judas had already arranged with the high priest and he said, the one that I go up and kiss, that is Jesus. He's the one you want to arrest. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. Well, Thursday turned into Friday and we all know what happened on Friday. Jesus walked the road of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, up to the hill of Golgotha where he was crucified. He hung on the cross and as he hung there, he took your sins and my sins and the sins of the world upon his body. His father couldn't look on him. It got dark in the middle of the day. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? There was a sign above his cross that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pharisees didn't like that. The high priest said, hey, can't you take that sign down or can't you change it to say, he says... He's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I have written what I have written. Why? Interesting thought. Remember the story of the Tower of Babel? When God confused the languages? And and, and there were so many new languages that came into the earth at that time. And they all spoke different languages. But you know what? In Galatians 4 it says, at the right moment in time, and the right point in history, what was that point? When all all the world spoke one language again. And you know what was written above the head of Jesus? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Everybody could understand who was on that cross. The Messiah, the King of the Jews, was put to death on that day. Oh, what took place in the next couple of days. I'm not sure we can quite fathom it. We can try to put ourselves in the minds of the disciples but I don't think we can quite get there. They were distraught. They were beyond themselves. They were hiding in fear. Men who a few days earlier were serving the king of kings. And some said, we're willing to die with you. But when the rubber met the road, they all went and hid. We we could be next. 
What if it's us? What if they're looking for us? What do we do? We pick this up in Matthew chapter 28. If you have your copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn there with me. Matthew chapter 28, verse 10 and verses 18 through 20 talk about the fact that we need to know the comfort of the risen Christ. You've got to hear this. The risen Christ brings comfort. Matthew chapter 28, verse 10. Matthew writing to the Jewish people to help them know that Jesus is their Messiah. Jesus is their King. He writes this. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Who is he talking to? He's talking about the, to the women who came to anoint Jesus for his long time burial, for the end. They came to put spices and oil upon him. And the angel said, or Jesus says, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my disciples, my brethren, to go to Galilee and there they will see me. The dead one says, go to Galilee and you will see me. And then verses 18 through 20, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then quickly over to John chapter 20, there's one more thing that I want you to see about the comfort that the resurrection brings to the children of God. John chapter 20, verse 16, we read these words. Jesus said to her, Mary? She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Those words meant something to Mary, and I hope they'll mean something to us this morning after we finish talking about them. But before we do that, let's talk to the one who spoke these words of comfort to his followers after his crucifixion and resurrection. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much. For Jesus, we thank you that he's alive, that he's defeated death, he's defeated the grave. Right now he's seated at your right hand because his work was accomplished, it was, it was deemed a success, you were happy with it, you accepted his work, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How comforting that is to those of us who are his followers today. We thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Can I tell you something? You've got to hear this. This is most likely the worst day ever for Mary. She went to the tomb to anoint her Lord and her master, and his body was gone. She didn't know where it was. She begs the person that she thinks is the gardener, please, if you know where his body is, just tell me, and I will go take care of it. She stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped into the tomb, and the angel says to her, what are you looking for? And Mary says, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Her world is crumbling in on her at this point. She's distraught. She's still weeping. There's no controlling her heartbreak. Jesus then says to her, 
And she did not know that it was Jesus for some reason. She didn't recognize him. But Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Her response to Jesus, thinking he was the gardener, reveals her deepest desire. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where he is and I will take him away. I will care for his body. Mary and the rest of the disciples, totally distraught. But here's the comfort, my friends. He calls us by name. He calls us by name. So there's no doubt how broken Mary's world was at this point. She thought her life was over, ruined, no sense in going on. But perhaps the first word spoken by Jesus after his resurrection was a person's name. Mary. Mary. And as soon as he said her name, she knew who was talking to her. When Jesus spoke her name, everything changed. Her response, Rabboni. Rabboni is a strengthened form of rabbi, and it was used as a title to express great honor and supreme reverence to the one who she knew just defeated death. Rabboni, the greatest honor, the greatest privilege she could ever give to anyone, she gives to Jesus. The highest compliment to the greatest teacher who defeated death. What hope does that bring to Mary? He's alive. My life has purpose. It has meaning. I can go on. Now let me remind you of this truth Jesus knows your name. He knows my name. Because the risen Christ defeated death and because the risen Christ defeated the grave, it means so much to know that Jesus knows our name. I don't know if we've sung this song here before, but there's a song that we used to sing in South Africa. It's called, He Knows My Name. As hard as life is, as difficult as your life may be today, you can take great comfort knowing that he knows your name. Listen to the song. Don Moen introduces the song, and then he sings hope and comfort to the hurting child of God. He says, I have a maker. He formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. I have a father. He calls me his own. He'll never leave me no matter where I go. I have a maker. He formed my heart. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. Each tear that falls, he sees it, and he hears me when I call. Jesus knows your name. Jesus has his name on his heart, and when you're hurting, he knows your name, and you can almost hear him calling your name. My child, my child, I love you. My child, I'm here for you. He said it, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the promise from the Messiah, from Jesus that brings hope. So yes, he calls us by name. But then the next words that Jesus utters on that resurrection day, in that period of time, he commands us to go. After Jesus called Mary by name, he told her to go, give the good news of the resurrection to the disciples. 
He says, go tell my brothers, the ones who are hiding, the ones who are afraid of their lives, the ones who are probably in the upper room crying, go tell them that I'm alive. They witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. They knew the heartbreak. They knew the hurt of losing their leader. They knew the despair of having their world broken and their world turned upside down. But then, here is the gospel. Can I tell you something? The gospel is not just for salvation. The gospel gives us strength. The gospel gives us hope every day of our lives. From the moment we trust it and accept it as truth, it gives us hope for every day after that. The gospel, it makes a way. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel brings hope. The gospel brings help. The gospel brings healing. Because Jesus is alive, there's nothing that he can't make better if we rely on him. Now this doesn't mean that he will change or fix the problem or the circumstances, but you know what it means? means that he will be with us every step of the way. No matter what the problem is, no matter what the circumstances are, the one who knows us by name is walking by us side by side every step of the way. Jesus told Mary, go. And later on in that chapter, he gave the great commission. We read that. What is the first word in the great commission in verse 19? Same first word that he gave to Mary after he greeted her by name. Go! Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You and I are compelled to take the gospel to the hurting. Can I tell you something? The gospel is absolutely necessary for salvation. A person can't be saved without it, but the gospel continues to bring hope to everyone in every situation. Ryan Stevenson has a great song that reminds us of the blessing that what the gospel is to mankind. The words of his song go like this. A restless generation returning over every stone, hoping to find salvation in a world that's left us cold. Can we get back to the altar? Back to the arms of our first love? There's only one way to the Father, and he's calling out to us. To the captive, it looks like freedom. To the orphan, it feels like home. To the skeptic, it might sound crazy to believe in a God who loves. In a world where our hearts are breaking and we are lost in the mess we've made, like a blinding light, it's the dead of night, it's the gospel, the gospel that makes a way. He goes on in the song and he says, it's the cure for our condition, it's the good news for us all, it's greater than religion, it's the power of the cross. Can we get back to the altar? Back to the arms of our first love. There's only one way to the Father, and he's calling out to us, to the captive. Maybe you're here this morning, and you feel like you're just bogged down, hurting in pain, stuck there and can't get out. To the captive, it looks like freedom. To the orphan, one who doesn't have a home, the gospel looks like a home. To the skeptic, Everyone who doesn't believe in who God is, who Jesus is, it sounds crazy. But we need to believe in a God who loves. Our hearts are breaking. We're lost in a mess that we've made sometimes ourselves. But then there's this blinding light in the dead of night. It's the gospel. The gospel that makes a way. 
The amazing news of the gospel is not that we can receive Jesus into our lives, but that he's already received us into his. In my own life, it means forgiveness when I know I deserved the fall. It called me out of my darkness and carried me to the cross. In the moment, my eyes were opened. In that moment, my heart was changed like a blinding light in the dead of night. It's the gospel that makes a way. Can I tell you this this morning? If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I trust that you would receive the gospel message. Let the gospel make that way for you to be made right with God. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, can I encourage you to trust the gospel? To let the gospel be that which makes you free from whatever it is that, is bearing the, that you're bearing the weight of? Can you, can you let the gospel deliver you from that bondage? In the dead of night, the gospel brings us light. Even though we might be here this morning and we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we may be struggling with things. We may be hurting because of certain things in our life. Look to the gospel. It's the gospel that brought you that hope on the day of salvation. It's the gospel that continues to give you hope and encouragement and comfort with every day of your life. You see, my friends, you've got to hear this. You've got to know that the comfort of the risen Christ is the result of the resurrection. The comfort of the risen Christ is ours because of the resurrection. The resurrection does something else for us as well. We can have confidence because Jesus is risen. We can have confidence because Jesus is risen. In your copy of the scriptures, jump over to Luke chapter 23, if you will, please. Luke chapter 23. Verses 25 through 27, Luke writes this, Jesus says this, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought, now he's talking to the people on the road to Emmaus, okay? He's talking to this, uh, this couple that were coming back from the day's events, the crucifixion, and they were in deep distress. They were mourning. They were trying to figure out why this all happened, what happened to their Savior, what happened to Jesus. After all, they thought he was the Messiah. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The disciples are in the upper room and and, and, and these two people have returned back to the disciples. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst. They were recounting the conversation, the fact that Jesus revealed himself in their home after they reached their destination. And now in verse 36, we pick it up and the disciples are in the upper room. They've returned to the disciples. They said these things. They told him all that had happened on the Emmaus walk. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Peace to you. Remember who they are. They're disciples who are scared to death, thinking that the Romans are now coming after them. Peace to you. (laughs) Verse 37. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit or a ghost. That's what they thought. Who is this man? How can he be here? He's dead. He's in the tomb. They weren't listening. Mary told them, he's alive. 
Verse 38, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones as you have seen I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Let's talk about this for a moment. Jesus is the Christ that was promised. That's what we see here. That's one of the things that gives us confidence. Jesus is the Christ that was promised. And because he's the Christ that was promised, he keeps his promises. This conversation with the two on the road to Emmaus reminds us that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And God does indeed do what he says he will do. Now think about this. In three places... Mary at the tomb, these two on the road to Emmaus, and the disciples in the upper room did not recognize who Jesus was. Why is this the case in these three incidents? Let me say this, though. I can't quite prove it from Scripture, but I really think it's true. They didn't recognize Jesus because they were emotionally distraught. They were spent. They were broken. Can, can we agree that sometimes when we're distraught, we don't recognize who God is when he's working in our lives? We don't see him for what he's doing, and we begin to think, where is God anyway? Has he left me? That's where the disciples are. We can identify with that. But once they came to terms with the fact that Jesus was alive, what do we see? Their hope is restored. Their hope they have hope again. The gospel brings hope. I think so. sometimes we can be so broken, even though we might be Christians, our brokenness hides our Jesus and hides our hope and the healing that he has to offer. God has promised to be our all-sufficient Savior no matter what we struggle with. He's there for us. He's there in the struggles, and he's there in the good times. We see that Jesus Christ, the promised one, offers hope. Jesus is also the one who gives us peace. I love the fact that when he appears in the upper room, he says to the disciples, peace be unto you. You know what? You can't say that if you don't have the ability to give peace. You see, the peace here that Jesus is offering is peace that comes when our relationship with the Father has been restored. All mankind is born at enmity with God. The sin we inherited from Adam and Eve separates us from God. Jesus is the one who restores that peace, and when we respond to the good news of the gospel, that peace becomes a reality in our lives. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. No matter what's happening in your life, you can have peace. You don't have to have a troubled heart. 
Yes, this peace reconciles us to the Father. It gives us peace of knowing that we have eternal life. But that peace also allows us to have peace even when there seems to be no peace in the world around us. When our world is torn apart, when our world is fractured, there is peace that comes from God. Peace in the midst of the brokenness. God is there. Brandon Heath has a song that speaks to the fact that God is the one who can get us through our struggles. It's a fun song. You might want to go listen to it this afternoon. It's called See Me Through It. Here's a couple of verses. I know you're going to see me through it. If anybody can, you can do it. God, I know in the trial, in the pain, the fire, in the rain, you're going to see me through it. You're going to see me through it. If anybody can, you can do it. And that whenever my hope runs away, you save the day. You're going to see me through it. When the sky falls, who am I going to call? The one who put it there in the first place. Who else would you call? When it's broken, who do you call? The maker. The maker is the one who can fix it. Who's our maker? God. When our life is broken, who can fix it? God. Then the one, full-scale attack, devil on my back, better lace him up, going to put on my game face. I don't got this. I know you got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I believe it before I see it. Our God is bigger than all our problems, the only one who knows how to solve them. So if you're sitting in the back rock bottom, prayers in the air if you got them, because I know you're going to see me through it. If anybody can, you can do it. God, I know in the trial, in the pain, the fire, in the rain, you're going to see me through it. I told you it was a fun song, but what truth? And here's something else, that line that says prayers in the air if you got them. You see, my friends, that's the beauty of community. That's the beauty of being part of a church family. If you don't have the strength to pray, those you are in community with will lift you up. And that happens at this church. My phone buzzes often with text messages. Pastor, can you put this on the prayer chain? Pastor, can you ask people to pray for this? Pastor, can you pray about this? And when my phone buzzes, so does yours. Because I send it out. And then after I send it out, my phone keeps buzzing because you are sending back notes to me saying, I'm praying for this, I'm praying for that. God help them, God do this, God do that. Because we are in community, we have confidence in our great God and our great Savior. And when we don't have the confidence ourselves, we have confidence with one another who are bearing us up in prayer. What peace it brings to us by knowing the Prince of Peace. You see, when we don't know, here's, here's another thought. When we don't know how to pray and we just cry out to God, God, help! You know what the scripture says to us? God takes our cries that we don't even know what to say. We don't even know how to put words to them. God takes those cries and he brings them right into the very throne room of God, his father, and he hears them and he answers them. How much more peace can you have than knowing that even all we have to do is cry out to God without words. When the words we don't know, we can't say them, The Holy Spirit takes them and prays them on our behalf. And God hears them and God gives us peace. Oh man, what peace. How do we know it all works? Well, we know that it works because Jesus said it works and because Jesus is alive. 
There's proof that Jesus is alive. You might miss it here in this uh, part of the passage of Scripture that I read for you in Luke. Uh, the proof that Jesus is alive um, is, is that people saw him. You see, people tell us that the story of the resurrection is just a, it's just a fairy tale. It just makes you feel good. You know what? If that were true, they would have produced a body. If Jesus never rose from the dead, they would have given us a body to prove that he didn't rise from the dead. There is no body because it is alive. There's no way to display a living body. Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated the grave. The tomb is empty. And aren't you glad? Because if the tomb wasn't empty, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, what would we be? Pitiful people. In other words, we would be pity people to be pitied, people to be felt sorry for. Can I tell you something? We don't have anything to feel sorry about. Jesus is alive. Jesus defeated the grave. The tomb is empty. Nobody can refute that. People might say, well, his disciples stole his body. Come on. If that were true, do you think they would have died for that? Every one of his disciples, except for John, died because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They preached it, they taught it, they lived it, and died for it. You're going to die for a lie? Something that really isn't true? That's something that you made up? No. Empty tomb proves that Jesus was al- was, is alive. It wasn't a hoax. You don't die for a hoax. The second proof is that there were eyewitnesses. Listen, there are more than just his followers that witnessed him alive. If it were just the 11 that said Jesus was risen from the dead, we might say, okay, yeah, yeah I'm not so sure. You have something to gain from this. But you know what? Scripture tells us that more than 500 people at one time saw him. More than 500 saw the risen Lord. You know what it requires in a court of law to make something true? Two witnesses. We've got the 11, and you can count them as one if you want because they had a purpose. But then you got 500 individuals that saw him at, at one time. There's no doubt. Jesus is alive. The pagan soldiers were witnesses They went and told the religious leaders, hey, that man that you put in the tomb? (laughs) We don't know what happened, but there was an earthquake, and when we looked inside the tomb, he ain't there. And it's not because we didn't do our job. He's gone. And let me tell you something, his disciples didn't come and steal his body, otherwise they'd be in there with him too. He's alive. We don't know how, but he's gone. The Roman soldiers, these guys weren't just going to be overtaken by a bunch of fishermen. They were mighty men. They were powerful men. They had all the weapons they needed to make sure nobody got in that tomb. And as far as they were concerned, nobody was getting out either. He's gone. He's alive. We can't explain it, but he's alive. And you know what? 
Those Roman soldiers, they should have been put to death if it was a lie. But the religious leaders paid them money and said, hey, we'll take care of it. We'll go talk to your bosses. We, we got an idea what happened here, but we don't want anybody to know. They were trying to cover up the story. They wanted to dispel the gospel message. They, they, they wanted to make people think that Jesus really was dead. But you know what? When hundreds of people see him alive, they can't refute it. The third proof, and I, I, I kind of like this one. Um, he's standing amidst the disciples, and they're trying to figure out what is going on here. Are you a ghost? I can imagine some of them might have went up to him and poked him to see if their fingers went through him. Because that's what happens with a ghost, right? Because the Bible says they thought he was a ghost. You were dead. We saw them put you in the tomb. You must be a ghost. Jesus says, hey, you got some food? Not because he was hungry. Well, maybe he was. I don't know. Probably hadn't eaten in a week or so. But he says, you got some food? So they gave him some fish, and they gave him some bread. He took the fish, and he took the bread, and he ate it. Now, you, you can use your imagination here, but what would happen if a ghost ate something? Yeah, it would fall right through him. <laughs> There's nothing in there to keep it in. It stayed in. Jesus ate the food. It proved that he was alive. They opened their eyes and they saw the Jesus that was crucified. You know what this did? This brought them great hope. They not only proclaimed the truth, but most of them went on to die for the cause of the gospel. Why? Because it is true. Since all of this is true, the last counsel from Jesus on his resurrection day comes into play. It is this. Know that Jesus conquered death. Hey, you gotta hear this. Jesus conquered death and compels us to serve him. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 31. Go ahead and turn there. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 31. We read this. It's a little bit later, but we still hear these words from Jesus as a result of his resurrection. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Thomas wasn't with them the first time, by the way. Jesus came, the doors being shut, stood in the midst of them, and said, peace to you. This is like deja vu for the other ten disciples. But then Jesus looks at Peter and he says, or looks at Thomas and he says to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. And at this point, I can only imagine Thomas saying, that's okay, I'm good. I, 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 I don't need to do that. No, no, Jesus says, reach here, put your fingers in my hands. Put your fist in my side where that spear was. And Thomas, look at what he says. And Thomas answered and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. (coughs) That's you and I. Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. And truly Jesus did those, uh, sorry, truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. This is the second time that Jesus appears to the disciples. Uh, this time Thomas is here, okay? And Jesus is adamant that Thomas find out, know for sure, understand who he is. Jesus says, you got to touch the nail scars. You've got to touch the spear in my side, the wound from that. So what do we see from this passage of Scripture? Well, we see the certainty of the resurrection. Jesus is telling them, I was dead, I am alive. Thomas, who we know as the doubter, you know what? He is now a believer. What brought him to that point? He saw Jesus He touched the nail scars. He put his hands in the side where the spear was thrust and his response was, my Lord, my God. He no longer doubted. The truth has an amazing way of prompting us to believe. But there's more to it than just believing. You and I who trusted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we're not just to sit back and believe, but we're called to serve. You see, we have the certainty of the resurrection which prompts us, which calls us into service for him. And that's what we see in verses 30 and 31. We see Jesus giving the purpose statement of his life, of his ministry, and even of all the gospels. He says, these things are written that you might believe, that you might know, that you might, you might have eternal life everlasting life, not just for the here and now, but throughout eternity. When time stops beating, life goes on. Or death goes on. Either either you have eternal life or you have eternal death. We've already considered Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where we are told to make disciples of all nations. But listen to the words of Dr. Luke, actually Jesus, as Dr. Dr. Luke records them. He says here, then, it said, then he, Jesus, said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of this. You know what? Jesus tells us, that we need to go tell people about repentance and forgiveness of sins. He actually was a little bit into alliteration as well. He said repentance and remission. Go talk about to people repentance and remission of sins. How is that talked about? By preaching his name to all the nations. Our service, the things that you and I do for our God, our service shows others that we belong to the resurrected Lord. Not only do we speak the power of God to save the lost, but our lives must be lived to show the power of the gospel. Can I tell you this? Our go and tell must be backed up by our show and tell. What you and I do must bear out what we say. Our go and tell 
must be backed up by our show and tell. We can live like Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection. We have nothing to be ashamed of. Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, it changed the course of humanity and it changed our lives as well. It provides us with hope of eternal life as well as hope to live life in the here and now. The words of Jesus concerning his resurrection, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear about the comfort, about the confidence, and about the fact that you and I and Jesus has conquered death. Our death has been conquered as well. We might cease to live on this plane, this world, but we're going to live forever in a place called heaven. Even more, can you be encouraged today by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and challenged by the things that Jesus said following his resurrection? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We thank you so much for loving us. Wow. Jesus on the cross was a demonstration of your love for us. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, we say thank you today from the bottom of our hearts. We're so grateful for what you did on the cross of Calvary. But we're even more grateful that you are risen from the dead. You're alive. And the next thing that you're going to do is come back to take us home to be with you. Father, we have great hope. We have great confidence. We are encouraged because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Thank you, Father, for the celebration that we can enjoy because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. In his name we pray. Amen.